Welcome to the It's One Louder podcast. Your host, PJ Pat, has done absolutely nothing that you would know about, but don't fret. PJ Pat's passion for rock, hard rock, and heavy metal will no doubt please all headbangers as he explores the world of the modern rock star from a musician's perspective. So turn up the volume one louder and enjoy the show. Hello, what's up, rock fans? This is PJ Pat and my sidekick, good and trusty Henry over here. How's it going, Henry? Yep, that's his look. I know him very well. That's the I'm doing awesome look. And I'm super excited to read to you an article from one of my vintage old magazines from 2009 from Spin Magazine, released in North America, 2009, like I just said, about this amazing band, Pearl Jam. As you can tell from the poster behind me and This picture frame right here, I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. Ever since I heard 10 on the radio back in the early 90s, took my heart, grabbed a hold of it, and hasn't let go. I've seen them countless times, and uh, just happy and excited to share this article with you. Uh, uh, This article was written right after the release of their Backspacer album. So here we go. Let's dive right into it. show you the opening uh, spread here. Check that out. Look at that. The article is called Moving Targets, and it's written by Josh Eels, or Els. I hope I'm spelling it right. It's E-E-L-L-S is his last name. Thank you, Josh. And photographs by Rankin. Eddie Vedder and gang have an axe to grind and throw as Rock's former angry young men try a new approach. There you go. Let's get right into it. Ah, check this out. The man himself. The man of the air himself. Look at that. Looks like he's just getting ready to... Step in a ring and fight against, uh, I don't know, Vince Neil or something. The man from the 80s himself. 90s versus 80s. 90s always wins, by the way. Okay, here we go. You haven't really tasted death until you've been inches away from an axe swung by Eddie Vedder. Not that Eddie Vedder is careless. He's just dot 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 focused. He gets his look. You know the one from the Jeremy video. Vaguely lupine, lips curled, fangs bared, eyes crazy. He grips the haft with both hands, draws the blade back over his head, and lets it fly, watching it tumble end over end in an elegant arc sinking into its target, a three-foot-wide cedar stump with a deep, satisfying thunk. Bullseye! Mark it, Eddie says, pumping his fist. Hey, you need another beer? At this point, I've been in Vetter's company for about eight hours. We've surfed, we've swum, we've sailed... We've drunk and drunk some more. I've met his wife. I've high-fived his kids. I'm almost starting to feel like part of the family. Remember, this is an intensely private man who swats away adulation with bland pronouncements like, I don't want the personality to become bigger than the music. In parenthesis, such principled evasiveness, of course, only makes the adulation run deeper. I definitely agree. As the lead singer of Pearl Jam, he found superstardom in the early 90s, then spent the next decade and a half dismantling it, a guerrilla campaign of career suicide that's become rock legend. The band boycotted Ticketmaster, making touring next to impossible. They refused to shoot videos, a gesture this magazine once called so profoundly anti-commercial that it remains virtually peerless. Yet here we are, 2009, and Pearl Jam have a new album coming out, along with something an observer who didn't know better might even call a marketing strategy. They're on TV commercials, in rock band, on Cold Case. They're selling songs to video games and ringtones to Verizon. They're coming soon to a target near you. 
And this afternoon at one of his West Seattle homes, Eddie Vedder and I are drinking beer and throwing axes, which can only mean one of two things. Either this is about to be the scene of the first ever music journalist ambush murder, or Pearl Jam have finally decided to lighten up. Stand clear, he yells, setting down his beer. Whoosh, 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 thunk. Los Angeles, two months earlier. The machine is gearing up. The machine is gearing up. Pearl Jam are at the Universal Studios lot for the taping of the premiere episode of The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. Backstage, a scene is one of choreographed pandemonium. Piezo shouting into the walkie-talkies. Pages are checking and rechecking their clipboards. Gaffers are, well, gaffing. Even the band members comfortably holed up in their two green rooms aren't safe from opening night kinks. About 45 minutes before showtime, bassist Jeff Ament and drummer Matt Cameron realize they've been locked in their dressing room. Cameron gives a knob a yank. Even his drummer forearms are no help. Is anyone out there? He calls through the door. Dudes, we're fucking locked in, yells Ament. Someone asked Max Weinberg if he can play Matt's drum parts. It might be safer in here. Three hours ago, news broke that the band's new album, Backspacer, would be self-released and distributed in partnership with Target. There's nuance to the deal. In parenthesis, more on that in a minute. But right now, all anyone knows is that Pearl Jam, the self-righteous standard bearers of no logo, anti-consumerism, will be following in the gilded footsteps of Christina Aguilera and the Black Eyed Peas. Out on the loading dock, their manager of 19 years, an unexcitable man named Kelly Curtis, is on his phone running damage control, while simultaneously prepping the band for the biggest rollout in at least a decade. Back in the, in parenthesis, now unlocked dressing room, Ament is watching ESPN on mute. Six weeks ago, he and the band's tour manager were robbed outside Atlanta's Southern Track studio by three knife-yielding attackers who allegedly made off with a Blackberry, Ament's passport, and $3,000 cash. Ament was treated for head injuries at the scene. You doing all right, I ask? By way of introduction, his reply is curt. I'm not talking about Atlanta. Okay, then. Goateed and serious, the 46-year-old Ament is the group's tut-tutting moral compass. Mike McCready calls him intense, a decision maker, a questioner of things. Along with guitarist Stone Gossard, he's the one who testified in front of Congress during the Ticketmaster crusade. And since the beginning, he's overseen most of the band's visuals through his graphic design shop. He seems the least likely member of Pearl Jam to advocate hopping into bed with a corporation currently ranked number 28 on the Fortune 500. And yet, Target, in quotations, Target just seemed like the best partner for us right now, Ament explains. They're hipper. They have a huge philanthropy side. They were also, according to Curtis, the only big box retailer willing to share distribution rights with independent music stores and Pearl Jam's fan club, a must for the band. We spent the last four years thinking about this shit, said Ament. It's not like we went with Target because we liked the logo. For the band, the financial upside is clear. By releasing the album themselves, they get a bigger cut of each sale, something like 4 bucks or 5 bucks, compared to about $2 on a major. Huh. That's interesting to know. And this is back then, when album sales actually counted. Now it's probably pennies. Actually, it is. It is actually less than pennies uh, per stream. Okay, back to the article. 
Since they paid for everything up front, there's also no record label advance to recoup. And maybe most important, they own the rights to the master recordings, which not even their hero Bruce Springsteen can presently claim. Still, there is a certain karmic irony in the notion that a band that gave corporate America the finger so hard for so long might finally be softening. Just this afternoon in a post about the deal on Stereo Gum, one commenter summed up the inevitable reaction perfectly. Looks like those thugs in Atlanta stole their cred too. I asked if they're worried about backlash. Oh sure, a man says, especially the way the media can put it out there. We're going to get lumped in with the Eagles, with ACDC, but it's totally different. And people say, oh, Pearl Jam are working with this corporation. Fuck that. We were on Sony for 20 years. <laughs> True. The taping goes well. They play Got Some off Backspacer, Yuck It Up with Will Ferrell, Give Conan a Guitar. Then after a post-show dinner at the Ivy, they scatter. Like most groups who've been sharing a bus for 20 years, they don't hang out much when they're not working. Back at their beachside Santa Monica hotel, only guitarist Mike McCready lingers in the lobby. Check it out, he says, grinning like a kid who just pocketed a pack of baseball cards. He pulls out a nameplate emblazoned with Pearl Jam and the Tonight Show logo, freshly, freshly swiped from the green room door. Pretty cool, huh? One of the great myths about Pearl Jam is that they never wanted to be successful. The, the tr truth is, wanting to be successful is what brought them together in the first place. Gossard and Ament split from the Seattle grunge godfather's green river because they wanted a major label deal and the rest of the band didn't recreti was even more ambitious moving to la in 1986 with hopes of hitting it big with his hair metal band shadow in parenthesis the closest he got was opening for ex duran duran guitarist andy taylor of course we want to sell records mccready says the next morning walking on the beach that's never been a thing we didn't want to do but back in the day, the spotlight came on very quickly, and Ed wanted to pull back because his life had gone completely upside down. I wanted to keep running. I was like, I've been playing in bands all my life. Now we, now we have this chance? Let's see how far we can get with it. Pearl Jam did not keep running, but now they're starting to. As part of the Target deal, the band agreed to shoot a commercial with director Cameron Crowe, a friend even before he cast him in 1992 singles. They're also working with the makers of Rock and Roll Band on an all Pearl Jam edition of the game to be released next year. And the fact that 9.2 million viewers tuned in to The Tonight Show can only help. We've always tried to subvert the business, McCready says. But now that we're putting out a record on our own, we're taking on the responsibility of sinking or swimming ourselves. If that means writing a song that sounds like a mainstream video hit, we're going to do that. And if it means going on TV to promote ourselves, we're going to do that too. McCready digs a toe in the sand. At a certain point, he says, it's like, who are we even fighting against? Welcome to my hideaway, Eddie Vedder says, greeting me with a handshake and a beer. He's sitting on the porch of a three-bedroom teardown on the shores of Seattle's Puget Sound, just down the hill from the house he's lived in since 1992. He bought the place last September and has been refurbishing it into a surf shack. It's very much a work in progress. Strip siding, bare concrete floors, exposed wires, no plumbing. In parenthesis, there's a porta potty around the back. Vetter usually just pees in the yard. He built the fence himself with a backhoe and a belt slander. And though he doesn't know it yet, he's about 24 hours away from catching a nasty case of poison oak while clearing brush in the yard. Vetter, 44, is in full-on beach bum mode today. Wispy beard, long hair tucked under his mesh baseball cap, 
tank top, board shorts. A fresh American spirit dangles from his mouth, and his lips are white with sunscreen. On the porch, his dog, a brown mutt named Hank, is sprawled next to a cooler full of Coronas. Vetter fishes out one, then picks up a pair of binoculars from the table and gazes at the water. So you want to go for a paddle? We grab surfboards and walk down to the shore. I'm a surfer living in exile, Vetter sighs. Occasionally, he'll catch a few waves from a passing tugboat, but mostly he has to settle for paddle boarding, a surf canoe hybrid he learned from his friend pro surfer Laird Hamilton. On his recent solo tour, he paddled at almost every stop. The Hudson, the Potomac, a lake in Nashville, everywhere but Philadelphia. In parenthesis, there was a fountain at the hotel, he says. I thought about it. <laughs> We've been out for about half an hour when a silhouette appears on shore, waving and calling for its daddy. I think that's my little girl, Vader says. We paddle over. Standing on a rocks in a flower print swimsuit is his five-year-old daughter, Olivia. Behind her is her mom and Vetter's wife, model Jill McCormick, holding 10-month-old Harper. The girls just got back from a day at the zoo. Now they're on their way to the pool. Vetter takes Olivia's hand. He calls her Oli, and they walk down to the water together. She tells him about the polar bears and the jaguars and a baby gorilla that was even smaller than her. She picks up a little hermit crab and hands it to him as a present. He finds one and gives it to her. Aww, she says. Yours is bigger. After a few minutes, Jill calls to her. Dad has to get back to work. Vetter bends down, scoops up Olivia, gives her a kiss on the cheek. She squeezes his neck. I love you, Daddy. I love you, too. Back out on the water, Vetter says, I try not to be away from them for more than two weeks at a time. He grew up not knowing his own father who died when he was 13, and he seems determined not to let history repeat itself. He takes Olivia to Mariner's games, taught her how to swing a bat, tutors her about waves and tides. This summer, he gave her surf lessons on Oahu's North Shore, bribing her with Hawaiian shaved ice. Mm. Vetter says he'd probably be a surfer instructor if he weren't a musician, but he also has his fantasy. Sometimes I think the best thing I could do would be to get a tow truck and just drive it around. Throw a chainsaw in the back, maybe a set of jumper cables. Just look for people to help. Somehow, coming from Vetter, Ross' closest thing to a Holden call field, this doesn't sound patently ridiculous. You can hear in it the fixer, backspacers taught, earwig of a lead single. Lyrically, the song is simple. Vetter sings about something being wrong and then says what he'll do to make it better. If it's cold, he'll put a little fire on it. If it's low... We'll put a little high on it. I'm the type of person who wakes up and asks, what can I fix? He says, but for a long time, if there was nothing to fix, I'd break something. So I guess in terms of being happy, at least I'm not breaking things on purpose anymore. It's the last weekend in July and Seattle is freaking out. Highs are topping 90. The rain clouds have been AWOL for weeks and pacey Washingtonians are stripping off their earth toned flannel and parting like druids at the summer solstice. One particular gorgeously Saturday afternoon, I get a message from Stone Gossard. We're having a dog party at the house. Come over. Tucked away on the shores of Lake Washington, the Gossard homestead is a shrine to modernist modesty. Glass walls, a patio, a simple wooden dock. Gossard, 43, in a pair of green swim trunks, has just put his two-year-old daughter, Vivian, down for a nap. And his hair is still wet from the lake. We take a seat down by the dock. 
his dog, Bassie, curled up underfoot. For Backspacer, longtime collaborator Brendan O'Brien produced the band for the first time since 1998's Yield. They worked fast, just 23 days from tracking to mixing, less time than any album since 10. At 37 minutes, it's also their shortest album ever, and The Fixer is the catchiest thing they've done in years. We've been disappointed in some of our records, Gossard said. It's been a while since people said, I gotta go buy this new Pearl Jam. But I think this record is what we could have done for the last five records in terms of re-engaging with the roots of why this band works. And if no one likes it, I'll be shocked because I know it's good. Once upon a time, Gossard was as headstrong as the rest of the band. Now that they're all, in parenthesis, save a meant dads, they've settled into a sort of middle age, real politic. Being stubborn, holding on to the core of yourself through thick and thin, there's something to be said for that, Gossard said. But you're going to spend a lot of time fighting over a mile of territory instead of opening yourself up to those big moonshots. I ask him if the band ever regrets being so difficult, if maybe they missed out on something. Sometimes, he said, I look back and think, I could have been so much smarter, more helpful. Fuck, I could have had so much more fun. Minutes later, Vivian comes toddling over. The nap didn't take. She pats Bassie on the head and crawls on Gossard's lap, her hair a mop of blonde curls. I tell, I tell her I like her pink ladybug dress. Thank you, she says. I got it at Target. Gossard nearly falls out of his chair. I promise I didn't tell her to say that. In quotations, want to take the boat? Vedder asks. The boat is not what you think. It's a motorboat. About 10 feet long, baby blue with bench seats like a 57 Chevy. Vetter found it on the side of the road a couple of years ago and brought it home. His only improvement was a new motor. 2500 bucks, he said. Good as new. He packs a duffel bag with ice and some Coronas and we head out to the sea. Cruising the sound, Vetter points out the sights. His first apartment in Seattle, the Olympic Peninsula, Mount Rainier... Neil Young's prairie wind blasts on the speakers. He makes landfall on tiny Blake Island, kicks off his shoes, and parks himself on the beach. These days, when most people think of Vetter, if they think of him at all, it's as a scowling rabble-rouser who spent the past eight years and two albums informing audiences that George W. Bush was not a very good president. It's easy to forget what he was for a moment, perhaps the biggest rock star in the world. Even if they never record another album, Pearl Jam can still sell out multiple nights in arenas. So at a certain point, what is the point? People who like Pearl Jam will listen to them. People who don't, won't. Why go to all this trouble? Vetter takes a sip, thinks for a minute. There were a few years where I'd meet people, and they'd say, So what have you guys been up to? And we had just done, like, Riot Act. We'd done a couple of good records. It was like they thought we were some band that only existed for a few years. Like, I remember you guys in 1992, right? Exactly. And I feel like if we were a niche band, then we'd have our little thing now, and that would be fine. But we're bigger than that. I think these songs are worth hearing. And it's not like the airwaves are cluttered with the greatest music. What? If we don't do it, American Idol will. A lot of what we're doing now is about getting new ranks of kids coming in, not just playing for old people all the time. Because then you're fog hat at the state fair. Right, which is great too, because it's Fog Hat, and we're at the State Fair, and we're waiting for a slow ride, and then it's, baby, put down your chili cheese dog, it's slow ride. I just don't ever want to be, baby, put down your chili cheese dog, it's Jeremy. 
<laughs> Two years ago, Vetter recorded his first solo album, a folky acoustic soundtrack for Into the Wild, directed by his friend Sean Penn. The film tells the story of Christopher McCandless, a stubborn 22-year-old fed up with the misplaced preoccupations of modern society, decides to quit the game. Sound familiar? If you drew a graph of everything that was going on inside that kid, then it's the same for me. You could put them on an overhead projector and our transparencies would match up perfectly. McCandless, of course, spoiler alert, takes it too far, ignoring all of the goodwill around him and literally killing himself to prove his point. He could have been a martyr, but mostly, he just seems foolish. A well-meaning young man fighting battles that he didn't even need to fight. I ask Vetter if there's a lesson here. We still feel that drive, and we're still one of the best rock groups around, he says. So, so forgive us if we do something to balance out that earlier sabotage. He pauses. We're trying to do what we did, except without dying. It's cooling off, so we head back to the shack. On the porch, someone, in parenthesis, Vetter's wife, his publicist, has left a little care package. Nectarines, a box of stone wheat thins, and most egregiously, a bowl of cherries. What's this, a cherry fairy? Vetter asks in his mock horror. We can't have man camp with fucking cherries lying around. <laughs> we swap stories about hiking and baseball and other man campy things. Then Vetter starts talking about his newest hobby, axe throwing. He pulls out his iPhone and scrolls through pictures of a target he and Laird Hamilton built in Hawaii. One shows Vetter brandishing a four-foot-long chainsaw, another a large double-headed axe. He flashes a conspirational grin. Want to try it? We grab baseball helmets, Coronas from the garage, and head out back. The rules are simple. Zero to five points per throw depending on how close you are to the bullseye. First man at 21 wins. It's kind of like darts, only with axes. Do you like Bruce? Vether asks, popping the river into a CD boombox. He proceeds to tell a Springsteen story, complete with a flawless boss impression. Pretty soon we're talking about heroes and dads and all the while he keeps disappearing into the garage and emerging with some beer. Eventually I'm hit by a dreamlight realization. Eddie Vedder is drunk and I am drunk and we are throwing axes at a tree stump in the dark. By now we've gone through at least a case. Empty bottles litter the ground. Vedder is on his second pack of smokes. Let's take a little seventh inning stretch he suggests. We walk over to the western side of the lot, looking out over the sound and the islands and the mountains beyond. The late evening sun is a deep crimson, shimmering on the black water. Vetter tosses a tennis ball to Hank, and then takes a swig of beer. I don't know why anyone wants to live facing east. By now it's a little after ten. Jill has probably put the kids to bed and is wondering where is he, except she knows him, and of course he started throwing axes. He'll turn off the boombox, toss the empties into the recycling bin, maybe have one last smoke. Then he'll head up the hill, kiss his girls goodnight, and collapse into bed. Comfortable in the knowledge that today, he did his part. Back in the bad old days, Cameron Crowe described Vetter as an open wound. Earlier on the island, I asked him if he thought he'd healed. He took a long theatrical drag off his cigarette. Yeah, that wound won't sting anymore. The trick is, you have to learn how to tap into it. Anybody who thinks it has to be gapping to make great art, I don't agree. The memory's enough. And then Eddie Vedder, the dark, brooding shaman of disillusionment and anguish, laughed at himself. Pain, he says, is just too painful. Awesome. 
check out the spread right here how cool is that look at that poster pretty cool pain he says it's too painful there you go pj 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 you know i'm sure we all have that band where no matter what happens in our lives we always go back to them when we need comfort when we need to feel good right and for me it's obviously it's pearl jam um and how i got into them was you know when i first heard 10 right back in 91 i believe it was it blew me away absolutely blew me away everything from eddie's haunting voice to the lyrics the topic of the song what the hell they were singing it wasn't like the 80s like the hair metal stuff you know i, I dug the the hair metal stuff but i couldn't relate to you know the partying the bang of the chicks um just that whole vibe it just wasn't me as a person and so when i heard this topic the darkness of the lyrics and and the emotion to it um it just got me hooked from the beginning right well i hope you enjoyed this article just as much as i did obviously my favorite band is pearl jam i'm sure you have your own favorite band the point is we got to keep listening to this music that we love so much it really drives us you know there's been a lot of mental health issues especially since covid and you know this is such a therapeutic thing whether it's playing music listening to music just keep on doing it keep on spreading the rock music out there the love out there and uh, keep on supporting each other rocking out and i'll see you in the next video thanks a lot for listening oh Henry, you want to say bye?